You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Lanyap with Greg Stokes and Doug Stokes. Today we have two special guests, Becker Hall, the CEO of Hogs for the Cause, one of the largest festivals in the city of New Orleans, and Barrett Cooper, who is the COO of ERG Enterprises, which owns the Orpheum Theater. And he's also on the board of directors for the French Quarter Festival. Becker, what is it like running a festival in today's day and age? Yeah, it's a good question. It's changed dramatically since where we were. I mean, Hawks of the Cause was canceled a week and a half before kind of the COVID lockdown began. In that time, we were like, oh my God, we're going to be the only festival that doesn't go off this year, two weeks, and this thing's going to pass us. Uh, Obviously, that was, well, just wasn't the case. But the one thing that we're really struggling with the most right now would obviously be inflation. We were very fortunate last year and probably one of the only festivals that was able to get off while we were extremely capped. Uh, We're typically a 30,000 person festival and we restricted ourselves to 5,000 people per day. And even in that smaller kind of uh, infrastructure, the inflation we saw in just June, it was enormous. And here we are planning for the 2022 event in April. And I think that our costs on the production side are going to be 3x what they were, even what we saw in June from whether it's labor, infrastructure, security, you know, that's a labor issue as well. People kind of joke when they come up to me, it sounds really sexy and inviting to put on a music festival and sounds like a lot of fun. And when I tell them why they want to do it, and they're like, usually those are the reasons because I will tell you, if you want to put on a music festival, you better be banking money somewhere because it's usually a loss leader for people and in, in some kind of uh, tax break that, that brings in some goodwill for the community and the, and the environment doing it. So it's getting more and more difficult now with inflation and, and also competing events as people are getting out the gates here again to really make kind of the profit that or the margin that we're used to. What's typically from a difference between sponsorship and actual ticket sales and concessions and things like that? How does it shake out typically and how much of that inflation cost can really be passed on? Yeah, I mean, that's you're hitting the hard questions. I mean, obviously, any event and nonprofit based event is going to rely on sponsorship. You want to be going into the event in the black for sure. Events are a really perilous time because right now you really can't measure the ROI from a sponsorship perspective in the manner that you can from digital marketing. You don't know what kind of return, if any, you're going to get on your investment when you're sponsoring events. Then you throw different things on top of that, like all the climate and just terrible weather that we've had. Brands are a little bit hesitant to sponsor festivals and events these days. And what they're doing, and it's really, really difficult for the promoter, you really can't do anything about it, is they're putting these clauses, the clawback clauses in there, where if there is bad weather, they're going to claw back that sponsorship. So that money's been spent, but you're going to owe it back in in the event of, of rain. And sure, there's ways you can hedge a little bit of that through rainy day insurance, but that's a very expensive product that just eats into your your margins even more. So, I mean, to answer your question, very difficult to put on a festival. I think if you don't have brand history and you don't have just a very committed audience and you're you're not giving them a very differentiated, iconic experience, you're going to have some trouble. So we're very fortunate. We stay really in tune with our sponsors and, and our consumers and as well as our, our teams and fundraisers. So 
we're looking for a record here, but you know, the industry as itself is facing a lot of headwinds right now. What is it like, Barrett, from the standpoint of operating a entertainment venue like the Orpheum Theater in the same lines that Becker was talking about? Similar cost increases. I mean, labor model is probably the hardest thing we're dealing with because we don't have quite the same logistical security staging because we're more permanently built. That's really been the biggest challenge for us is labor model. So I don't think we're seeing it quite as much as the festival side, but we're certainly seeing the same challenge. But we're looking at like, what are the opportunities that we can then bring in new revenue streams or new opportunities for revenue? And actually, I wanted to kind of toss that to Becker's. I mean, you guys are talking about additional 3x costs, and that's just not sustainable over time. So I'm sure you're trying to figure out clever, opportunistic ways to find new revenue streams outside of just sponsorship and selling drinks. Is, is there something you guys are, are looking at currently? Because I can talk about a couple of hours. I mean, we're the, to the lowest hanging fruit in the music industry, I think, is VIP experience. Becker, you were talking about the cost increases for security, sanitation, et cetera. I was wondering if there were any offsetting opportunities that you guys are focused on on the revenue side, because I know there's equal challenges there, but trying to get ahead of the game. Yeah. I mean, I think that just because we're a nonprofit or maybe just a private event, we still think like any publicly traded company, we're focused on growth and you've got to be focused on growth year over year, knowing that a lot of these you know, expenses are going to pile up and get higher and higher. So for us, you know, we have a very, diff, you know, it's kind of a weird model and that we have these 80 to 100 teams that participate in this barbecue competition and raise money, but they also kind of work as little networking hubs for us in marketing hubs. So, you know, it's really important. And to be honest with you, it's levering them as much as possible. So, you know, compounding Moore's Law, whatever you want to call it, getting into those teams, learning who your teams are, trying to get teams from different areas, because that brings people from different pockets. So we're highly selective about who we allow into the event from the team perspective. And we do a lot of data capture on our, our customers and our teams and our donors. And we know what areas we're not getting, and we know where we're trying to focus to kind of bring it into the event. So when we have a new team come in, and, you know, we sell out in a week, but we'll hold some spots and we'll try to attract some people from different states and different zip codes. And that's what's important. If you can kind of develop a team there, because we do, you know, after doing this for 15 years, know what kind of makes a good team and, and what makes a not so great team. That's how you get a lot, a lot of differentiated revenue. So it's really difficult to come to a festival and just create some revenue pool out of the blue. You know, we're not going to drop AirPod, you know, hog pods. So it's kind of working with what you have and being creative about what you have. But knowing for us, it's really important to know the data. That's really cool. I couldn't imagine doing this 25 years ago and not knowing, you know, everybody would just pay at the gate with cash or something like that. And you'd have no idea where your consumer came from or your customer came from. You have no zip code, you have no email. And now we have RFID technology, which can tell us basically everything that we need to know. And, and that also goes back to your sponsors too. It's, you could go and tell them, you know, we sold this many amount of beers and they'll go, oh, wow, you know, we got to get more involved this year. Or you can say this many people went into your activation to this sponsor. This is what we think that means in dollars wise. So it's a matter of just knowing your customer and knowing your market. That's how we find new revenue centers. And it's, it works for us, but I'd be lying if I said it's not going to be challenging going forward. 
I think you're basically the poster child for what the government was trying to do during the 2020 period with the CARES Act and stimulus programs that were in place specifically around hospitality, food and beverage, festivals, concerts with Orpheum. You have the bar underneath the Orpheum. Can you just talk about the impact that those and those federal programs are obviously controversial? What impact, if any, did those have on your particular operations? And what are you seeing basically coming out of COVID? And you talked about inflation, but what's the impact of really the stimulus programs? Is that for better or for worse that they occurred in the first place? Looking at specifically the shuttered venue operators grant, which also includes, you know, operational companies and talent agencies and all kinds of different things within the theater. Going into it, we knew the Orpheum was satisfied, the criteria to be part of the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant, permanent fixed theater, it fit all the criteria of it. The challenge for us with the Orpheum is that the SVOG program was tied to labor costs. And in something as asset intensive as the Orpheum Theater, I mean, a larger percentage of our expenses is covering the cost of the real estate than most theaters because it's, you know, a 1920s, 100-year-old vaudeville theater that's just detailed out on every inch of the theater. It's not like you would build today. There was a lot higher asset cost to us. So, look, it was a godsend during the two years, essentially, of COVID, let's call it, where we were basically close to zero business or doing what we could without audiences. It was a massive drain in resources just to keep the building going. You know, you can't turn off HVAC because you start getting mold. You can't stop paying insurance. You can't stop paying taxes. You know, you still have debt service, et cetera, that you have to pay. And, you know, we did our best to keep as much of our staff on board as we could so that we could resurrect the business as quickly as possible whenever COVID dropped because it was, you know, we didn't know how long it was going to last. So it was crucial for the Orpheum, but it wasn't quite as impactful for the Orpheum as it was for French Quarter Fest because French Quarter Fest is so labor intensive that the money goes a lot further for French Quarter Festival. For French Quarter Fest, it was huge. I mean, I don't want to get into the details, but you know, we would have drained quite a lot of our insurance, and I call it insurance, our rainy day fund, had we not had the SVOG grant. It allowed us to keep the wheels spinning on the company while we weren't producing anything, basically keep everything intact so that when we came out of COVID, we were in the same position we were going in. And we're extremely, extremely thankful for that. I mean, it worked very effectively. But there were times in which we didn't know if we'd qualify because, you know, the rules were being written as they were being sent out, which was a, I mean, I got gray hairs from that. It's like, here's the rule number one, frequently asked questions. And I know, Becker, you're, you're thinking the same thing. You were looking through that list and being like, holy cow, we satisfy this, 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 but we're ambiguous on this one. They didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> to echo Barrett's point, I mean, it was a lifesaver to a lot of degrees. It was a fantastic program for people like us, for sure. You know, we at Hogs, when we really started building this festival up, what we did was we kind of studied uh, Jazz Fest in the thirty, the last 30 years of Jazz Fest and when they got into trouble and why they got into financial trouble. And we made sure that we're going to build a pretty bulletproof balance sheet so that we could handle two to three years of consecutive rainy or rainouts or something like that. So we were in a pretty good position. We weren't prepared for it was a COVID type scenario where everything shut down. So we weren't having the donations that we typically did. 
that was difficult. But the SBOG was massive. But there was another angle because we did, again, have our festival last year that our labor, a lot of our employees had to make the decision to work with us or not work with us because we were paying them. And if they took those payments from us, then they were coming off federal payment at that point. So that was a really challenging ordeal. And I didn't have any ill will towards anybody who decided not to come with us, but we literally put a festival together in 90 days, which is crazy. And we were working with people that we'd never worked with before. There's a lot of trust that goes in. Most festivals are big families. You work with the same people every year. They love those roles that they're in and and it's really sticky and you trust them. So working with a lot of new people was very difficult, but um, fortunately with a smaller kind of festival like last year, we were able to pull it off pretty successfully. What do you attribute? I mean, I think we're seeing this all over the place and you can see it in national numbers that the amount of job openings far exceeds the amount of people that are actually entering into the workforce. And so what do you attribute the either lack of labor or major increase in labor costs too. Why are people falling off that were with you for years other than obviously there's the stimulus payments that they're receiving from the federal government? Yeah, I mean, that's a tricky question. I think for most people in live music, they actually want to work. They love the industry and they love being in live music. And it's so cohesive. And like I said, familial, they do love it. But there's got to be a part of people that say, hey, if, if I were to be paid less to stay home and just sit here and wait this thing out, I'm going to stay home. And I think at that point, there was a lot of unknown. It was, you know, how long is this going to last? If I come off this, what if this thing goes another three years? Then I'm screwed. I just got off the payroll just for this one event. And I certainly didn't want to have anybody having, you know, a bad taste in their mouth towards hogs or towards us and not want to work with us in the future. So I don't know. I think now that, you know, the government's made moves where people should why they're not going back to work a little bit beyond me, but I think the music, uh, the live music in that space, I think we're going to be, I know we're okay because I'm seeing it right now. Why it's more expensive, everything is. Yeah, just to second what Becker said, I mean, the staff that we have at the Orpheum and French Quarter Fest are so passionate and zealous about being in that industry. I don't see them going somewhere else, but that time lapse you know, makes you rethink what you want to do in your career and what, what you need to do for your life. Yeah, and good point. the unknown good of point. it, I think a lot of people left the industry and they're not necessarily coming back yet simply because, you know, are we in a honeymoon? Are we sustainable? It's to be determined. I mean, it feels good right now, but, you know, we're cautiously optimistic about COVID raising its head again and becoming a concern again. And, you know, I don't know when we'll get past that. But, you know, we have assets in medical and, you know, there's a lot more burnout and just challenge of staying in that industry at the medical side. And we're not seeing that in the music industry the same way. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the great resignation. All these people that were getting close to retirement age in specific industries that were maybe you're 63 and you plan on retiring at 65 and COVID hits, you're saying, well, you know, why would I go back to the workforce for a couple more years? Might as well just retire. And look, the production side and the food and beverage side of this industry are also a little bit different in a way, right? I mean, the food and beverage side is having challenges in all different food and beverage classes that it touches. But the production side, I think, is a little bit more hold, held steady in our workforce. Like We're seeing the same faces. We're seeing a lot more challenges on food and beverage side in our venue. Yeah, I think I, I look at it kind of like top-down perspective, not just music industry, but, you know, 
it's not like we're coming out of World War II here. We're not coming out of some heroic event where you're going to have some baby boom. I think that people are just worn out right now. And maybe they didn't do anything but sit in their houses for two years. But man, that piled up on people. And they're, I think people are a little bit lost to some degree and just really questioning a lot of what they want to do with their lives and, and what life actually means at this point. So I mean, we came from political subterfuge into COVID, back into political subterfuge. It's been a lot for you know a human being to kind of take on. And I think that people are just sitting there digesting it all and languishing and Maybe the industry we all need to be in right now is some kind of therapy because imagine the next decade, that's where we're going to see the boom. Well, we are in therapy in a little bit. We're you know providing a music escape. I mean, I think that's what the focus needs yeah. to be. Is it difficult booking bands? Is there major competition for lineups? Are, are bands traveling now? What's uh, How's it been just trying to get a, a festival together and a headliners that actually people want to come watch and listen to? Well, I'll speak on the festival, you know, Fresh Quarter Fest being local. You know, they, those guys have been ready to play. And then the Orpheum routing, you know, that's on the route a lot of times. For us, this was the hardest lineup I've ever had to put together. And the variables of that were you had bands that were trying to resurrect their tours from 2020 and, and get back to those people that they had to cancel on. That's one. B, you did have some musicians that are still wary and, and really not ready, ready to get back on the road. There's management that are extremely on different sides of this whole thing. You gotta, I mean, I'm on a Americana type billing, so there's a lot of different kinds of bands. And then three, we're not Jazz Fest. You know, we don't have a big AEG or Live Nation behind us. Our whole premise is to give you really good value and try to get those bands as they're coming up. And you know, Barrett had talked about Mac Rabelais, but COVID for us. There was two years where bands didn't get that opportunity to come up. They were just static. So it was really difficult. And that sucks for those musicians. They weren't grinding it out and touring it, earning their brand and whatnot. So it was just really a matter of supply and demand. And then if you were available, every festival was trying to get you. If you're you know, a marketable band, music is like anything. It's the the 1% is 99% of marketable music. So the pricing, it was just ridiculous if you were available because everybody wanted you. Everybody wants to get back out to, to these events. I could tell you from the festival we had last year, it was like people were getting re-released into the wild. They were just going nuts. So yeah, it's a good place to be in a band if you're if you're in demand. Tough for a little guy like us, though. Yeah, at the Orpheum, we're not experiencing quite the same challenge as you are because we have an open calendar, right? You have a weekend where you need to get your music in, and I think you have a lot more challenge doing that. We have probably the most busy book we've ever had. I mean, it's a combination of music and comedy, and then weddings and private events, and you know those have been stalled and delayed. And so there's been a buildup of quite a lot of weddings that needed to be performed. And so we've got a a nine month period in which we have more weddings than we've ever seen. And we also have more concerts than we've ever seen. And our hope is that it's continued to sustain, you know, New Orleans, like you said, Becker, it's not the beginning or the end per se of the route. We're the in-between city. So we catch those shows, but we're optimistic about, you know, a continued pent up supply and demand for it. And frankly, I think you guys are going to have a terrific festival season because everything we've seen at the Orpheum 
has been that the desire to be out there is there and it hasn't lightened up yet. It hasn't shortened up. So I think it's going to continue. And, you know, I don't know how you're modeling your festival or if you're looking at like, you know, a reduced capacity just out of concern. But I think we're going to see a really strong attendance at our festivals come April across the board. And I'm hoping for it. I, I mean, a continued desire to want to find that normalcy and term we always use escapism to escape your living room and go find an experience that you can lose yourself into for, you know, an hour or two hours without thinking about politics and COVID and all the other challenges that you have to deal with. And if we can focus on that, that's what we talk about at the old If we can focus on that experience, that moment of escape, you know, that's what people I think really demand right now is a moment separate of all the, the static and noise of the world and just give them a moment to just let their guard down and experience something somewhat, you know, sublime in the moment that takes you away. And it's funny, I listened to John Baptiste on Colbert, and he talks about this now philosophically about how music can help you, you know, lose yourself for a moment and give you therapy. And I think that's what we're trying to focus on. It's hard, but you know what I mean? I agree with you, Barrett. I think, Becker, what you said earlier about just the general exhaustion of people going through the last two years. And this is just, it just seems that we're talking in between recording, we're talking about just the slate that New Orleans has coming up in in April with Hawks. And I think that this podcast is probably going to be produced that last week of March. So we'll lead right into the Hogs weekend. But we've got Hogs for the Cause and then the Final Four leading into French Quarter Fest and Jazz Fest. This city is going to be on fire starting that April 1st weekend. And it's just something that if you look at what's going on in New Orleans in general related to just the tourism environment, crime environment, this is something that the city really needs. And I think it will be a therapeutic session. Yeah, definitely. Hope so. Right. It's what we've been all been waiting for, really. I mean, New Orleans without Mardi Gras, New Orleans without festivals is really not New Orleans. And I think it's crucially important. One thing I'm interested to get both of your perspectives on is meteorology. So you mentioned that you've you had rainy day funds. Tell me what it's like to operate an outdoor event in a subtropical climate environment in the springtime. Yeah, I mean, for us, you could plan 99% of the whole festival. And you can plan for nine months to do everything down to a T. And then that 1%, that one thing you can't control can ruin and dictate everything. So, you know, New Orleans is a last second town. They're a walk-up gate community for the most part, which means they buy their tickets at the gate, the lion's share. So they look at that weather report on Monday, and that's where they make their decision. Now, I mean, there are products out there, again, rainy day insurance being one, it's a very expensive insurance. Even if you collect, there's still no substitute for the experience. And then you know, what you want to be able to do is compound every year and deliver this great experience so that that word of mouth, you know, the WAM kind of gets out there and more people keep coming in. So, I mean, me personally, you know, one of the reasons we kind of started changing a little bit of the model, and this speaks to other revenue pools, is because of the weather, you know, finding different ways to kind of pull in dollars outside of the festival has been, a you know, a huge, something that we've been working on and fortunately been working pretty successfully. I don't know. You know, Greg, what we do every year, though, is we boil 12 eggs and we go give them to some nuns on Chapatulas because that's supposed to, uh, I'm not lying, um, that's supposed to promise you great weather. Well, guess what? If you know anything about hogs, those nuns must not be eating the eggs. I don't know what's going on, 
I think the good thing about hogs is everybody gets out there the day before. And by the time that the festival actually begins, yeah. they don't really get They it. don't care. <laughs> yeah, they embrace it. But we're going into Mardi Gras right now. And we have this kind of weird thing as far as meteorology where we always say that if it rains during Nick's on Wednesday, then it's going to rain at hogs. So that's our bellwether is Wednesday of Mardi Gras, whether or not if we need to load up on rainy day insurance or not. So tomorrow's looking pretty good, I hear. I was listening really closely to hear if there was some sort of special sauce on how to do the rainy day insurance and the nuns on chop tools. We're gonna have to get that information from you because yeah, we'll exchange that. We don't have a better strategy than you do in that regard. Oh, let me finish with this because this is kind of funny. Like. Five years ago, Voice of the Wetlands was playing, and, and that's when Dr. John was playing with Voice of the Wetlands. It was kind of like Dr. John, Tab, and Anders, and, and Marsha Ball. And so Quint, Quint Davis from Jazz Fest comes up on stage to get a closer look at it. And first thing I said is, Quint, how the hell did you get back here? Our security is not doing a really good job. But uh, I said, well, while I have you, what do you all do for your rainy day insurance? And I was like, do you consult a farmer's almanac? Do you all have some specialists on staff? And he said, we just started buying it two years ago or three or four or five years ago. And we just throw darts at a dartboard. There is zero science to it. We like to think we have, there's nothing to do with like predicting the weather. We just kind of think of times of days because you can buy it in these three hour batches is how it works. It's really, really interesting product. Like years ago, it's like, if we can get science about it, because anybody can buy it. It's like, let's start a hedge fund. Let's raise a lot of money. Let's spread our risk out. Let's just buy all this rainy day insurance and see what happens. In terms of like, as a percentage of gross receipts, what is a premium for rainy day insurance cost? Right. So it depends on if you buy a quarter inch, a half inch, three fourths inch, that's how it goes. And then it's obviously cheaper if it's a higher the rainfall, but the payout, it's not like insurance. It's like there's been times where boom, and you get to pick where you want your, your weather like calibrated. Do you want it at the airport? Do you want it on site? So you could get really philosophical about it, but once it hits, boom, cash goes out to your account. There is no claim there is nothing it just hit so i'm going hmm, that's kind of interesting you know so <laughs> if we could get really good about the weather you'd be, you'd be a pretty wealthy guy yeah stokes you can either take one of the existing like measurable rainy spots like the airport or you can hire a consultant to stand out there right. with like a measuring gauge and just watch that thing as it ticks up and yeah the discussions we've had it's like yeah you get to a certain point you're gonna have a crowd of people around that thing just rooting for that rain to hit that line right, so you can right. <laughs> or you're going to have some guy talking to him and, and pouring beer on whatever that thing is that he's measuring right. behind his back so consultants making sure nobody's spilling any water in that thing yeah let's be honest it's not the most sophisticated product out there it's just kind of like roulette yes yeah I mean, that's what it seems like i mean it's like you're basically going to the casino and taking a 50 to one bet and paying a couple percentage points to do it and see if it pays off. We call it buy-in sunshine. That's what we call it. I mean, at the end of the day, though, it basically just nets you zero across the board. You know, it's taking your profits on good years and then giving you your losses on bad. Yeah, I guess the biggest risk there is lightning, though, right? So, I mean, if people if it's raining, people will still come out to a small degree, right? I'm thinking Mm. hogs specifically because hogs is generally just a rainy festival and people love it. Yes and no. You can't put live musicians on stage if the stage is wet to to a certain degree. So lightning, yeah, that's the worst thing possible. But if the stage gets wet to a point where you can't scrub it off, you know, with all the electric 
you know, electricity going on there and kind of their clauses, they're not going to walk on the stage. So in terms of booking musicians, how much of it is about the just the, the festival reputation versus the actual payment to the musician? I mean, is that momentum you were talking about, that word of mouth, uh, WAM momentum that you get, does that feed to musicians or is it just they're going to accept the the generally higher paying festival dependent upon the reputation of it. I can't talk about that now. <laughs> I think it just depends on who the band is and where you are in your career. For us, you know, as somebody who's tried to model the fest as really trying to get some up and comers, those that are in that hit and become pretty big bands. I mean, we've had bands that have a hundred X what their prices are. They want to play the fest. I mean, we just get pounded by them and their agents. But the market's going to dictate where, yeah. you know, your your bankable bands are going to go. What about, I mean, what about Barrett, the Orpheum, in terms of competition for acts that are coming through? And, you know, obviously the biggest one would be right down the street at the Sanger. But I think Orpheum is positions itself a little bit different than the Sanger. But in terms of classic theaters in New Orleans, that's the one that comes to mind. But how does it, from a competitive standpoint on open calendar as, as bands are coming through, how do you position yourself as the theater of choice for an up-and-coming act? So there's certain levels of uh, just capacity that basically first separates the different, you know, inventory and venues. So like Sanger is 2,500 plus, I want to say, and its stage is bigger. So really their bread and butter is Broadway and nobody else in the city can perform Broadway because they don't have the stage capacity. And as you can remember, that stage got renovated post-Katrina and expanded into the street behind it to give it that capacity to have Broadway. So Sanger's like all Broadway. That's their bread and butter. And nobody really competes with them on that. Our biggest direct competition is probably the Fillmore, just from a size capacity. We work very closely with Winter Circle and AEG. And then Live Nation is Fillmore. So it's kind of, you know, the two big giants in the industry working with you know, two venues to have their bread and butter kind of unit for the music in the city. What our differentiation though is a hundred percent. It's the hundred year history of the venue, the Baroque, you know, architecture inside it that's just irreplaceable. And really to me, the most important thing that's not talked about as widely is the vertical hall. I mean, we are the closest thing to Carnegie Hall when it comes to acoustics in the city and probably the Gulf South. And so the sound in our venue is just unbeatable. Like it's unparalleled. You can stand on our stage and whisper and have somebody stand at the very top of the venue and hear you clearly. You know, there are no secrets in that room and you just can't do that in Sanger or the Fillmore. The other thing is line of sight. You know, since it's a vertical theater goes up, we don't have nearly as much distance between our customers and our performers. So Really, I'd say our differentiator for musicians who want to come to the city is they love playing a hundred year old theater. They love the acoustics of the vertical hall. That's the big differentiator. Now, look, we operate the thing as well as we can, and we get tremendous feedback from our partners and from artists. And, you know, I'd be wrong not to say that they're not coming back because our stage manager kills it, our front house manager kills it, our GM kills it. And frankly, they love working with them because it's the same faces they see every time. But, you know, the asset does have some differentiation and that's that's what it is. It's his history and, and vertical hall. And the other thing that we haven't really discussed about the Orpheum is the build out of Double Dealer and the attraction that that 
really has. How has that really impacted from a customer standpoint, the desire to come downtown to go to the Orphan Theater to a show and then obviously grab a drink after? It's a couple of different things. On a concert level, it's a pre-sale or a post-sale drink kind of thing. It keeps you in the building, the casino model, right? We just want you staying around longer. There's also VIP experiences with certain artists in which the double dealer will be utilized for that purpose because that's a major revenue opportunity that's growing in the industry. And then from a private party industry side, it's amazing just venue to sell. It's also just a good second sale for an existing wedding upstairs. So for us, it's been really focused on a second sale opportunity, but it's still open to the public when it's not being used for that purpose. And, and, and you know, it's basement space that normally would be considered unusable in New Orleans. That's now an amazing second sale marketing opportunity and a bar for us. So it's been a dynamite project for us. And really, we built it again with the storytelling, the detail and the anti-commodity. So I think coming out of COVID, again, it's the whole escape from reality and lose yourself in something beyond just a good cocktail. It's a good cocktail and a story. And that's what we're trying to sell. Well, great. We're coming up on 30 minutes. So we'll wrap here. But this has been a great discussion, guys. And thanks so much for taking the time. Hoping this comes out the week of Hog. So if you haven't yet, get your tickets and get out there. And we're, we'll pray for great weather and we'll start boiling our eggs right now. But thanks, guys. Appreciate you joining. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.